I'm just going to read, <clears throat> pardon me, the first seven verses of John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Last Sunday, several people thanked me after the service for asking Jake to speak here. I was thankful also uh, for his message last week. What I noticed afterward, what lingered with me, was not anything that I had learned from his message, but what I felt, the impression it left on me. And that was a fresh awareness of how near the presence of God is always. You know, that infusion of, of spirit into our lives and into our world, and just how present he is. There were two specific moments that stand out uh, regarding that impression. The first was when he said that it's not about leaving the physical world or our physical bodies, but rather the veil is lifted. We don't have to leave the physical world to enter the realm of spirit. It's just the veil has to be lifted so that we see spirit here. And then the other one was when he said, the Psalms teach us how to talk to our nephish, um, our soul, uh, this, this spiritual part of us. The Psalms teach us how to say, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Um, hope in God. I believe that what happened last week, what I felt last week, is exactly what the Gospels are supposed to do for us. They're supposed to show us how, how near Christ is and how real the presence of Spirit is. And that we go around uh, blind and deaf to this, but it's like the healing of Christ comes to us through the Gospels and says, let your eyes be open, let your ears hear. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus does this through miracles and parables. In John's Gospel, Jesus opens eyes and ears through his signs and his dialogues. So the Synoptics emphasize his miracles, but when John talks about the miracles, he says they point to something. They, they don't just happen for the sake of miracle or even just for the sake of the person who, who's blessed by a healing or whatever, but rather they, ha they, they point to something else. They point to the supernatural in our world and, and uh, to the fact that Jesus has come to open our eyes to this. And so um, the last time we were in John, Jesus had a dialogue with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Today, his dialogue is with a Samaritan woman. And in his dialogues, he leads them out of their rational, literal mindset to a spiritual awakening, to a new perception and receptivity. And he, he does it by throwing something at them that they could take rationally and literally, but, then it, 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 but it doesn't really make sense. I mean, he talks in images they understand. He can talk, about Nicodemus, talk to Nicodemus about birth okay, and the wind, but he's not talking about birth or the wind. He's talking about something that happens in the spirit. And he can talk to the Samaritan woman about water, but he's not talking about water. See, so in order for them to get to where he's going, 
they have to let go of their rational literalness and begin to open themselves to spirit. You know, I say this stuff, and inside I'm going, Chuck, do you really get this? And I know I don't, and I'll tell you why. Um, <laughs> I, I read, uh, okay, I've been reading Oliver Sacks for like the last two years or so, one book after another, because I just love the man and, and his writing. And in one of his books, I think it was uh, Anthropologist on Mars, he talks about this guy named Virgil. And Virgil was blind from birth. But when he was about 50 years old, he underwent an operation that allowed him to see. Now, um, his wife was really eager about this until he could see. Because once his eyes were open, he, he did not know her from the doctor. He had never seen anything before. His brain had not developed the ability to process sight. And the world was confusing and terrifying to him. Everything, we think, what a wonderful thing. You know, you can see now. But what he saw was a world he didn't recognize, a world he didn't know. And so what he would do frequently is sit in a dark room or wear a blindfold around the house because that's how he knew his house and that's how he could get around. So if we think that you know, God opening our eyes is going to be this really neat, wonderful experience, I have a feeling that when it actually happens, there's an aspect to it that makes us want to say, turn it off, turn it off. Where's my blindfold? Turn out the lights. Because it's so unfamiliar to us. You know, again, you know, we, we think our rational minds can take us anywhere and help us to comprehend anything. We just have enough time. But this doesn't follow those rules. Jesus, though, wants to wake us up to the spirit. Um, so in the Gospels with parables, he tells his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And that same process is at work here in Jesus' dialogue with the Samaritan woman. And then also, uh, he has a, a brief dialogue with the disciples I won't go into. Um, he's sitting by the well. They go off to a nearby city to get food. He has this conversation with the Samaritan woman while they're gone. When they come back, they said, um, here, you've got to eat something. Well, they've been journeying, and Jesus is tired. You know, so we're told he sits by the well as weary as he was. And then they come back with food, and they said, eat. But he's, Jesus is like up now. You know what I mean? It's, it's like the adrenaline's flowing, and he's like, and he says, I have food to eat you don't even know about. And they look at each other and say, has someone brought him something to eat? Right? So he's talking about food. They know food. He's not talking about food. He says, my food is to do the will of my father. How does that nourish? How does, okay, so... So here we are. John chapter 4 moves around to a lot of places. The story is bordered at the beginning and the end by two places, Judea and Galilee. They're both mentioned. This is what in, lit, in literature is called an inclusio, or sometimes a bracket, where a portion of the text is marked off as having, you know, this, uh, it's a distinct section all to itself. That's what this is. And it begins with Judea and Galilee, ends with Judea and Galilee. In between, we go to Samaria and to a specific village in Samaria, Sychar. Um, Jerusalem uh, and the mountain of Jerusalem and the mountain of Gerizim are also mentioned. Gerizim isn't mentioned by name, but it's, it's there. Uh, Cana and Capernaum. All these, all these place names appear in this chapter. Now there's um, one intriguing place name implied in the chapter, 
but not named. And it's in uh, verse 43. After two days, Jesus departed Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his home, in his own hometown. Well, okay. The problem is, Jesus was in Samaria, in between Judea, where he had left, and Galilee, where he was going. And he, he continued on in his journey from Samaria because he himself had said, and he quotes, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And there's been debate, a, a long, long debate, over what's Jesus' hometown in this context. Samaria could not qualify as Jesus' hometown. There's no way. The Samar- um, just so we can appreciate this, Israel in the Old Testament was divided during the, king of, during the reign of King Rehoboam. And Israel to the north was Israel proper, and to the south was Judea. And the northern tribes immediately defected from God. They invented their own cult, and that ruined them. Eventually, they were wiped out by the Assyrians. The Assyrians imported prisoners of war from other countries and exported uh, Israelites from Israel, so that what eventually happened there was a mixed breed of people, or sometimes the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds. So in time, Samaritans came to worship the same God as the Jews did in Judea, but the, the Jews never accepted them. And so the Samaritans created their own shrine for Yahweh and worshipped him there. But there was all kinds of racial tension and hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were treated as, um, as less significant, uh, as inferior. And the Samaritans knew that that was the impression that, that the Jewish people had of them. So there's no way that the Samar- any place in Samar- Samaria could be considered Jesus' hometown. So maybe you know, what's referred to here is Samaria, um, Galilee, and Judea. So maybe Galilee. Well, the problem with that is the very next verse says that when Jesus came to, to Galilee, all the people welcomed him. And if a prophet's not without honor except his hometown, then just Galilee, generalized, could not be that. So there are, there are scholars who argue that it must mean Judea is his hometown. Well, um, where in Judea could you say was Jesus' hometown, you know, where he grew up, where he, he knew all the neighbors and all the neighbors knew him? It, it doesn't work. John had let us know in the very first chapter Jesus was from Nazareth. Philip went to Nathanael and said, we found the, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? But at least we know Jesus came from, from Nazareth at that point. But Jesus had not made this statement, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, anywhere in John to this point. John is saying, well, Jesus said this. But John never tells us Jesus said this. Mark tells us Jesus said that. Matthew tells us that Jesus said that proverb. And Luke tells us Jesus said that proverb. And they all tell us Jesus said that proverb to the people of Nazareth when he was in Nazareth. But John doesn't say this. The debate dissolves when we realize that John's readers knew the synoptic gospels. They knew Jesus had said that in Nazareth. And so John can say, you know, as Jesus testified, so what's he telling us about Nazareth? 
he's giving us a reason why Jesus, when he went from Samaria to Galilee, to Capernaum, avoided going through Nazareth. He went straight from Samaria to Capernaum, skipping his hometown, and this is why. Because he knew he wouldn't, his message was not accepted there. <clears throat> this is the reason John's gospel is so different from the other three gospels. He doesn't need to say what they've already said. Rather, he fills in the missing pieces, the things they didn't say. So <clears throat> this chapter mentions a lot of places, but when we come to the heart of the chapter, Jesus erases the obligation or the dependence on any place. I, I want to say he erases space, um, but he doesn't exactly do that. He just erases space as being religiously significant. There's no more religiously significant space. Now, there might be for us, there might be you know, that place where we were when we first heard of Jesus or came to faith in Jesus or had our baptism or our confirmation or whatever, but, but that's individual and that's unique. There's no place we all have to go, no temple in Utah, um, in, in order to be uh, really in, in contact with God. What I want to do now is pick and choose sentences from Jesus' dialogue with a Samaritan woman and... Um, and create my own heresy. <clears throat> now, I would love to walk you through this whole dialogue because to me, it's just such a, a fan, fascinating passage of scripture. And I have done this before. Uh, let me see, it was about five years ago. Uh, but I love going through it because the way this repartee goes between Jesus and the woman is just fascinating. She's, she's bright, she's quick-witted, uh, and Jesus is, you know, um, he's up for the challenge. And, and she's sarcastic, and he's sincere, but you can almost feel the amusement that he has with her um, until he hits a nerve. And when, as soon as he hits the nerve, she's ready to shut down. Conversation over. Okay, but <clears throat> we're not going to do that. I need to stick with my thesis, and that is that John is providing us a spiritual commentary on the synoptics. Two facts are highlighted right away. First is Jesus is that Jesus is talking to a woman. Now, don't gasp. Uh, invert. It, it's a cultural thing. Okay. I'm not saying this is really significant for us. Jesus talks to a woman. I mean, every woman here Jesus has spoken to. So, you know, what's the big deal? It's a cultural thing. When the disciples come back to the well where Jesus is with the food, it says, then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Okay, can you can you sense that? Right, this is this is an issue. This is a a big deal. Jesus is here alone talking with this woman. I mean, let alone she's Samaritan, but no rabbi, no no self-respecting rabbi would be alone with a woman like this talking to her. Now. You know, forgive me, but it's, you know, it's not my belief, it was theirs. Women did not rate that high. You know, you're wasting your time trying to teach a woman, right? Again, that was then, not now. <clears throat> but Jesus is there, and he's doing it. In, in the Synoptic Gospels, there are two women who immediately come to mind who were very resourceful and were able to get what they wanted from Jesus. One woman wanted her demon-possessed daughter to be delivered from the possession. The other woman wanted to be healed from a hemorrhage. 
One of them was clever. The other one was sneaky. Uh, <clears throat> the, the clever one took Jesus' words and used them to manipulate him, so to speak. The other one sneaked up behind Jesus and tried to get away before he ever found out what she had done. But the key to the success of both women was their faith. And he told them that. He told the, the Gentile woman, great is your faith. In the same chapter of Matthew, he tells the disciples, oh, you of little faith. Jesus only talks about great faith twice. Both of them are Gentiles. One is this woman, another is a centurion. His disciples, it's always your little faith, your little faith. Woman, your, your faith is great. <clears throat> and the other woman, he said, go your way, your faith has healed you. Well, this Samaritan woman is like that, that Gentile woman. She too is an outsider. Actually, all three were outsiders because the woman with a hemorrhage had to be um, sequestered or, or quarantined um, and she was not supposed to leave her home because anywhere she went, her presence made that place unclean. The objects in that, I was just reading this in Leviticus this last week. It's in uh, one place is in chapter 12. Um, So anyway, the Samaritan woman is also an outsider. She's also clever, but her story is the reverse. The Gentile woman wanted something from Jesus. The Samaritan woman doesn't want anything from Jesus. In fact, Jesus wanted something from her. He said, would you give me a drink? The other woman, uh, at first, Jesus would not engage with her. She's, she's going after his disciples, and well, she's going after him. He won't talk to her. In fact, Matthew says, he did not answer her a word. She's trying to get his attention. He did not answer her a word. So she went after the disciples. The Samaritan woman, Jesus initiated the conversation. He began talking to her by saying, give me a drink, woman. The other woman, the, the Gentile woman, um, <clears throat> he told her that he wasn't ready to take Israel's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this is where her cleverness won his heart. She said, well, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he said, woman, great is your faith. Go your way. Your daughter's delivered. He wasn't ready at first to share with her Israel's bread, but he's immediately ready to share with the Samaritan living water. Women are not unimportant in the synoptics, but in John's spiritual commentary, the call to mission and the call to evangelism includes women. And we don't get that in the Gospels. But this woman leaves Jesus, goes to her Samaritan village, tells everyone in the village, I think I've met the Christ, uh, this man who's told me everything I've ever done. How does he know? And so they all come out to meet Jesus and ask him to stay there for a couple of days, which he does, and they believe in him. So she's the key to to that. Okay, the second fact, that's the first fact that's highlighted, is that he's talking to a woman. The second is that she's Samaritan. In in the Synoptic Gospels, again, by Synoptic, I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Samaritans are stereotyped. And they're stereotyped in the way that the Jews tend to see them as inferior and not worth their time. In fact, when Jesus gives his disciples and he sends them out for the first time on their own solo missions, his first instruction to them is don't go into any Gentile or Samaritan village. Don't take this to Gentiles or Samaritans. This is for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's his first instruction. And he gives them warnings and other instructions, what to do, what not to do. 
his first instruction is don't go into the village of any Samaritans. <clears throat> One time, a Samaritan village closed its gates to Jesus. They wouldn't let him in. And that's because he and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. And they're going to go into this village either for food or lodging or something. They wouldn't. They would not service him. And James and John, they immediately pick up the, you know, the spirit of nationalism and said, Lord, they volunteered to call fire down from heaven on this Samaritan village. You know, uh, I've always wanted to do it, Lord. I think this is a good opportunity. <laughs> you know, Elijah did this sort of thing, or Elisha did this sort of thing. No, Elijah did. Um, and, and that, I think, just... James and John reveal the prevailing attitude towards Samaritans at that time. For this reason, it's a surprise whenever Jesus presented Samaritans in a positive light, like in the parable of the good Samaritans, the Samaritan who does the right thing, or when Jesus heals 10 lepers and one of them is a Samaritan, and that's the only one who comes back to give thanks for his and now here Jesus is, and in this story, he goes much further. He targets this woman. Okay. I said that when John quotes Jesus, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. It's to explain that on his trip from Samaria to Capernaum, he's going to avoid Nazareth. He's intentionally going to avoid Nazareth. But he did not intentionally avoid Samaria. He could have avoided Samaria. Most religious leaders did. Most rabbis, elders, any priest traveling, they would take a long road around Samaria, circumventing it because them, for a Pharisee to go through Samaria, they're going to be defiled just by going through the territory. And, you know, Jesus apparently isn't interested in any of that. He does not avoid Samaria. In fact, in the opening verses, it said he had to pass through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to pass through Samaria, technically speaking. So what's the What's the imprimatur? What's, what is driving him? This is he has to go through Samaria. Well, going through Samaria is the only way he's going to reach this woman and reach her village in turn. So he has to go, he has to go through Samaria. He doesn't have to go through Nazareth. He doesn't have to stop in his hometown. I mean, sure, there will be people who put him and the disciples up if he went to Nazareth. He doesn't have to go there. He avoids it doesn't have to go through Samaria. And others avoid it. He doesn't. He goes to Samaria because he has to get to her. John's spiritual commentary tells us that the invitation to eternal life includes Samaritans and other Gentiles. Uh, You know, you would think that Jesus' disciples would know this. But it's not clear in the synoptics and even in the book of Acts when God first sends Peter to a Gentile God has to give him a vision and he has to give him a vision three times for him to get it. God's message is don't call unclean what I've cleansed. So when Peter is by God's spirit dragged to the home of this Roman official or centurion, there are all these Gentiles, all these Roman Gentiles in the guy's home. When Peter walks through the door, the first thing he does is he starts apologizing. He says, you know, um, a Jew isn't supposed to go into the home of a Gentile. Like all nervous about this. This is, this is all wrong. I know it's, it's inappropriate. It's awkward for me because I'm the better person and you're all Gentiles. But um, uh, what do we do here? Well, you know, God told me to be here, so here I am. What do you want? We would think that he would get get it. No, he had to learn this slowly. Well, John is telling us, John is writing after 
that after Peter's experience. By the time John writes this, there's a strong Gentile mothership in the city of Antioch, a Gentile city. And there are Gentile missionaries going out from Antioch into all the world sharing the faith. So, so in John chapter 12, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we're told, and there were certain Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And they found Philip and they said to Philip, we would see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. And so Jesus went to Philip and said, there's some Gentiles who want to meet with you. And Jesus says, now the hour of the Son of Man has come. In other words, this, this is reaching critical mass when even Gentiles now are coming to Jesus and being allowed to come to him, when he, when he cares about them, when he's reaching out to them, when God's work goes from Israel to the entire world. There are three other statements that I think powerfully illuminate the synoptic gospels. In verse 10, um, Jesus says to the woman, would you give me a drink? She goes, well, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And Jesus says to her, woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. First of all, he says to her, if you knew, this captures the spiritual consciousness of Jesus' contemporaries. They did not know. They were clueless when it came to what God was doing at that time. They should have known. I mean, they had all the prophecies. This was going to happen. And Jesus will point out, they even had prophecies regarding his suffering and death. But they did not know. They, they were not able to know. When Jesus in Luke's gospel, approaches Jerusalem. It says, when he drew near to the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem did not know. When the Sadducees came to Jesus in the temple with this trick question, his answer begins, he begins by saying, You are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. You you don't know your own scriptures, neither do you know the power of God. What does that mean? You don't know what God's doing right now. You don't know what he's capable of doing right now. You don't know how his work is unfolding right now. You are so clueless. You, You don't understand your own scriptures and you don't see what's happening now. Jesus came to let them know. And John emphasizes this. Again, in the first chapter of John, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the only unique one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known to us. No one's seen God, but here's Jesus. He makes God known to us. Okay, Jesus' briefest statement that he makes to the woman is... When she tells him, I know that Messiah is coming, he says to her, I who speak to you am he. She goes, I know that when Messiah comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And he says, woman, I who speak to you am he. Now that's worded in a way that we can understand it in English. The Greek is a little, sounds a little awkward to us. He says, I am. The one who is speaking to you. The one who is speaking to you is I am. Scholars have noted the I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. What's the significance of that? It's when Moses said, what's your name? God said, I am. I am who I am. It was Popeye who said, I am what I am. God said, I am who I am. Um, Where did that come from? 
Um, the woman asks him at one point, um, he, he offers her living water. She goes, well, where are you going to get that? The well's deep. You have nothing to draw with. And, and um, she asks, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Well, that's the revelation. That's exactly the revelation. The answer is yes. Later on, Jesus will tell the Jews in the temple, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Before Abraham was, I am. Are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than Moses? That's the message of the book of Hebrews. The answer is yes, yes, yes. And and that's the answer here. Jesus doesn't go straight to the answer here. That's the answer. Are you greater than Jacob? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes a statement um, about the temple. And he says, something greater than the temple is here. Now that Jesus is here, there's something greater than the temple. In the same chapter, he says, the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of Sheba came all the way to Jerusalem to see Solomon and something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than all the law and all the prophets. The this, this something greater, greater is the ultimate I am the ultimate revelation of God on earth to us in the person of of Jesus Christ. So, um, So this brings out in a very strong way something that the the synoptic gospels lead us towards but never so explicitly as this. The people of Christ's time, their, their minds were blocked by what they thought they knew. Well, we know this and we know that, and you don't fit the criteria. You don't observe the Sabbath the way we do. Um, you don't. You and your disciples don't fast as we do, etc. So they discounted Jesus before they even discovered Jesus or what He was bringing to them. Their minds were blocked by what they thought they knew. And I know that my mind is blocked by what I think I know. Not as blocked as it used to be, but still not as open as it should be. There is more to my here and now experience than what I know or acknowledge or even think to know. There's the well, there's the water jar, there's the mountain, and that's all I see, though there's a whole world of spirit here at the well and in the water jar and on the mountain. Yet at the same time, the well, the water jar, and the mountain can be the very channels through which Jesus awakens me, through which Jesus enables me to see living water. John's spiritual commentary tells us that if we stay with Jesus and and listen carefully, he will break those mental locks and we'll begin to see. Also in verse 10, woman, if you had known or if you knew the gift of God, that's huge. It, It will, we'll have to wait until Romans, I mean, because it's not in the synoptics, but we'll have to wait till Romans to hear the phrase, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Woman, if you knew the gift of God, um, and he's saying this is a free gift, and he's saying it to a woman, to a Samaritan woman, to a Samaritan woman who had lived with five husbands and was now living with a man who was not her husband. For those of us who were raised to think of ourselves as unworthy, 
who are trained to be ashamed of ourselves. Did you ever get that? You should be ashamed of yourself. That's different from saying, well, you should be ashamed of your behavior. But those of us who are trained to be ashamed of our inner selves, those of us who are made to believe that we are disqualified from anything good, well, you don't deserve this, so you can't go to Disneyland. Uh, we're di- di- disqualified from doing anything significant. You? You're going to write a book? You think you're going to you know, be captain of the team? Who, who do you think you are? Those of us who, who see ourselves as disqualified or who have disqualified ourselves by our behavior, by our addictions, by our, our crimes, sins, compulsions, whatever... Those of us who see ourselves disqualified or have disqualified ourselves, just to learn that uh, from Jesus that God has a gift for us, that God is a gift to us, is the best news we could ever hear. It's the most, it's the most wonderful thing. I don't deserve this. Jesus says, I'm, I'm inviting you to come with me. Peter's first response, Lord, Leave me. Just, just leave me behind. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, don't worry, Peter. I'll make you. I'll make you what you can't make yourself. I'll make you what you have not been. I'll make you your true self. I will make you a fisher of men. Don't worry. Just follow me. And, and with all my deflection of his invitations, well, I can't do that. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of that. To know that this comes to me as gift it just makes everything possible. And I can say to you that if God can win me to himself and work in my life, then he can certainly win you to himself and work in your life. Because you haven't screwed up as badly as I have. And if you want to compare, I won't do it. Um, just one more reading. Um, our reading from Matthew's Gospel today where people are criticizing Jesus and his disciples because they're, they're not following their religious tradition or customs. And Jesus comes back at them and says, well, you know, you're, you're finding all kind of loopholes so that you can do whatever you want to do. And with your traditions and customs, you violate God's very law in a pretense of keeping his law. You just twist it all up. He says, he says, you're just like Isaiah described. These people honor me with their mouths. They draw close to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Your worship is nonsense, he says. The Proverbs said that. The Proverbs said that the worship of a wicked man is an abomination to the Lord. And even more so, if he brings his offering with with a wicked intent. So my worship can be plastic, it can be unreal, it can be nonsense, it can be uh, a manipulation attempt, It, it can be all kinds of things, it can be in vain. I can worship God and nothing comes from it. Nothing of value to God or to myself. In fact, it would be better if... I had not worshipped. Someone says, well, yeah, I go to church. Can't hurt. Yes, it can. And I'll tell you why. Because if you hear there the truth and you refuse to live by it, that will hurt a lot. To, to not know is better than to know and not do. These, okay, so, that's Matthew. Now, the woman had a question regarding worship. You Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Our elders tell us we're supposed to worship here on this mountain. Uh, and this is after he, he reads her mail and she says, you're a prophet. I, I've got a theological question for you. Where, where should I worship? And, and then he, he, he tells her, remember, I told you before that he erases dependence on any place he says, a time is coming when people worship neither in Jerusalem nor, nor on this mountain that neither one of them will be relevant. No one will say, well, where do I worship God? He says, and here's why, because God is spirit. 
and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. And God is looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And in spirit means not by all these rules and regulations. In spirit means uh, not in this place or that place. It means that he's here, he's everywhere, he's always. And worship is appropriate all the time. It's, it's even urged upon us to always have this, this worshipful thing going on in, in our hearts. That, that the, the fire on the altar of our hearts is never to go out. Um, God is spirit. That defines worship. Worship is in spirit. So you can't see if a person's really worshiping God. And it doesn't matter if they're standing up and swaying back and forth with music with their hands raised. That doesn't that doesn't tell us. Now, it may be fully in spirit to that person, but it doesn't tell us because anyone can mimic that. And in fact, I think some people do mimic it till they hit the real thing. And I think that's okay. You know, if, if it's the real thing that they're after. But truth means real or authentic. That the worship actions express what's in the heart, that there's a consistency there, not a contradiction. And if the heart's not engaged, Jesus says, well, your heart's far from me. Your heart's far away. You, you, you come close with your words, your lips, but your heart's someplace else. That's just the opposite of worshiping in truth. In spirit, what I'm doing is more of my spirit expressing itself through my body and more of a spirit-to-spirit interaction, God's spirit with my spirit, my spirit with God's. And it's true, it's real, because whatever I'm doing at this moment is totally flowing out of what's going on inside me. Sometimes we have to prime the pump, but there you have it. John's spiritual commentary is that Jesus brings spirit to us and us to spirit. And that that is where worship nights. I I want this. I want what John is is telling us, is is leading us to. Um, I want to be more awake to that dimension of spirit. Especially to the presence of God everywhere at all times. But I've come to this realization It's never going to happen as long as my mind is cluttered with the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Those are the things Jesus listed when he said that the seed planted among the thorns, it grows, but it gets choked out. That his word finds a place in my heart, but it it dies off before it goes anywhere because the cares of this world... I've got lots of those. All the concerns about, oh no, what next? You know, um, I, I can't believe all the stuff I have to deal with. I have to resolve and handle. And it plagues me. And it keeps my mind so preoccupied that perceptions of the Holy Spirit, you know, how can they ever get through? I'm always processing information in my brain, but there's information I'm not even... You know, I've got filters, and it's not making it through the filters because everything is too busy. So what am I going to do? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There's one last line I'm going to read. But first I want to say, on Wednesday nights, when we have our Lexio meetings, um, there's a, a man who comes uh, frequently. His name is Michael. And Michael wrote a book about his near-life event. He doesn't call it a near-death event. He calls it a near-life event. Um, and he died in a motorcycle accident, was resuscitated, um, was in a coma for three months, and when he came out of the coma, could not speak, could not walk, could not swallow. I mean, he had to learn everything all over again. But frequently in our conversations, 
on Wednesday night, Michael will say, what I hear in this passage or what this means to me. And then sometimes he'll cry. He'll just be moved so deeply because that time that he was in a coma, he was in heaven. And he has something, he has a reference point that that is part of his lived experience where the idea of setting your mind on things above, he can visualize those things above that were... Is that a real description of heaven? Who knows? You know, whatever it was, it was accommodated to his mind and his condition. But, but the essence is real. The truth is is there. And I just feel he's so fortunate to have that because when I try to set my things, my mind on things above, I don't know what to think about. I don't know what to picture. Um, there's like an empty space. So I sit with the emptiness and just ask that God himself will fill it. The last line of, that Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And I know that that's the only way I'm going to get from here to there. As long as I'm, it's all the things of earth that are crowding out the other signals, I'm not going to have that intuitive experience that that spirit to spirit experience because the door just won't be open I want to open the door would you stand please you know um, I have a strong impression that the benediction today um, needs to be uh, the closing words that Jim usually um, gives to us before we're sent away on Wednesday nights. And now, my brothers and sisters, go in peace, knowing that whatever happens to you, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well.